What does parenting, keeping the canon, being a villain, and spiders have in common? Are you just watching episode 141, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And, well, I did not see the first one in the theater. I went and saw this one almost opening weekend. Actually, it was opening weekend. I went to see this the second day it was open. And was not expecting a cliffhanger. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Yeah, so we went to see Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It is the big movie of June, and it made sense since it came out the first weekend of June to do our episode on it. And we both went into this having talked about the original. We actually mm-hmm. did a review of the first one as a after the fact. It was not a current movie when we reviewed it. And this movie, I think personally was just not as good. And I hate to say that because a lot of the things that made the first one so original and so spectacular were in this movie like 10 times as much, maybe even 100 times as much. And certainly felt that way. Yeah, it was almost overwhelming. But one thing that, you know, I didn't see the first one in the theater. So I think that that might play a little bit into that is that, you know, the the visual impact of the first movie was on the small screen for me. So I never had it like surround me like it does in a theater. And this one was definitely more of an experience, obviously. <laughs> and And it was mind blindingly more, I guess. Chaotic? Chaotic. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. It was very chaotic. And I feel like whoever was planning out this movie, they sat down and looked at the reviews for the first one and said, oh, we did this, this, and this right, because everybody loved it. Let's just double down on those few things and make them even bigger and better. And instead of trying to think of, again, something original, they built themselves a new box to stay inside of and I don't know. This movie just didn't live up to the promise of the first movie, unfortunately. Mm. But it's not that I didn't like it. I mean, I think I would have been happier if it hadn't been a cliffhanger. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but imagine if it had been a four-hour movie instead. Yeah, well, they could have wrapped something up just so that it just didn't end. But at the same time, I do feel like the the story arc of this movie wasn't really Miles' story. I think it was Gwen's. So it started out with Gwen talking about, you know, joining the band and it didn't work. So she created the yeah. band at the end. So I really do feel like the story arc that was completed in Across the Spider-Verse was Gwen's story. I think you're right. I think that's what they intended to. Yeah. So if you're viewing it that way then, you know, it did complete something. But at the same time, since everybody goes into the movie expecting it to be about Miles Morales, I think that that kind of left him in a bad spot. So I think that that was not as much mm-hmm. of a of a good thing. I do have quite a bit of creative friends since I'm in graphic design for a living. I am surrounded by people who are illustrators and graphic designers. And the ones that had seen it were all not that pleased with it. So I think from a a visual standpoint, 
it even for visual people, I think it was a little too much. One of my friends said that she ended up with a headache after watching it. Another one said her friend, who was a massive fan of the first movie, told her it was garbage mm-hmm. and not to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think opinions about this movie are really, really strong. And it's sort of divisive. Yeah, you know, I I haven't gone to look at Rotten Tomatoes. It's, you know, it's only been out for a week when we're recording this. So I don't know what reviews are looking like. But I think that the expectations set by the first movie may have set the bar a little high for the second movie. And sequels usually are, you know, especially trilogy sequels, you know, looking back at, you know, the middle movies, they often don't meet the same expectations as the first one because they have to leave something to climax to in the third movie. At the moment, it has 96% on both the tomato meter and the audience score. Really? That's yeah. higher than I would expect it to be. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I expected it to be closer to the 50s because I was seeing the same type of divisive comments that you were. Yeah. But maybe the people that are actually going in and rating it liked it, or the ones that didn't like it aren't rating it. <laughs> so it's I possible, don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they didn't care enough about it to go on Rotten Tomatoes and give their opinion. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get too far into our impressions, I do want to mention the music to this movie. The score is once again by Daniel Pemberton. He did the first one as well, and I suspect he will do the third one. His music style really fits with the animation of this movie. I can't imagine them going with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Whenever he ends up, you know, being a composer that we talk about, I usually pretty enthusiastic about him because what I like about him is he does kind of break the mold of, you know, scores where he mixes a, a lot of different kinds of music together. And he literally builds the tension and the almost like the sound of the movie into the music, which is really cool. Yeah. I really like the way that he came up with a unique sound profile, you know, music profile for each spider person that had screen time. Right. And especially Mm -hmm. Toby, I think his name was, you know, his had that real heavy metal Mm -hmm. sort of split punk Mm -hmm. vibe to it. And I was listening to it today while I was working and I could tell from the music what spider person it was written for. And that really is an accomplishment in my mind. Yeah, he did a little bit of that in the first one. But I think because, you know, there were so many spider people in this movie that were important, I think it was very necessary for him to create, you know, a distinct theme for the ones that were the most important, the ones, like you said, that had screen right, time. Right, right. And I feel that Gwen's theme really dealt heavily with, you know, the whole idea of drums, because she was introduced at the beginning where she's like drumming out her frustrations. And so when she's on screen, she has a theme, but it's got kind of like this undercurrent of drumming behind it, which is, you know, that she, you know, she's still taking out her frustrations, still beating up her frustrations. So yeah, this is definitely a score that to me, honestly, it surpasses the movie. It's a, an amazing score. It's one that I will probably listen to multiple times. Uh-huh. And it does bring the movie alive because when I was listening also to it today, it was like I could actually picture parts of the movie in my head while I was listening to the music because the music was so strong, such a great presence that you could actually yeah. 
remember, even though I've only seen the movie once, I could actually remember what was going on on screen when I hear the music. So that is a, a pretty powerful score. And I will play a little bit of it here. as we head into our discussion that I felt like there were at least a couple themes in this movie that were almost overemphasized. It was almost like they went in with the script going, this is what we want, you know, people to remember from this movie. And then they like almost every other scene brings it up in one way, shape or the other. And it's like, all right, like just hit me over the head with a hammer next time. And we didn't even have Spider-Ham in here to hit us with his metaphorical hammer. So that's really my impressions of this movie. I do think that we do have a significant amount of things to talk about. I was sort of the same way, with yeah. the, particularly with the cliffhanger. It was only offset by the fact that I hadn't heard that it was a cliffhanger before I went in. Because, mm-hmm. you know, something like that is usually front and center. In the marketing and stuff like that. You remember when Dune came out, we knew about a month before. Mm -hmm, That it was only going to be half the book. Yeah, exactly. And it was interesting because the director didn't want to make the second one until he knew that the first one was well received. Right. In this case, you know, because the release date for the third movie in this series is already less than 12 months away. Mm-hmm. It's actually nine months. That means they've they probably already done animation, the equivalent of principal photography, mm-hmm. and are in post production already. Yeah. So the fact that that it was hidden that it would be two movies that sort of surprised me. I actually I liked this movie. I didn't think it was better than the first one, but I thought it was as good as the first one. Yeah. I really latched on to the whole idea of the moral quandary that it raises and ties into MCU Phase 5, which is the benefit – it really goes back to the Star Trek saying, you know, the the good of the many outweigh the good of the few or the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit in the themes. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting that they are tying it into the MCU so strongly because Sony is the principal maker in cooperation with Marvel on the Spider-Verse movies, and Marvel and Disney don't really have anything to do with these. So the fact that they are actually tying them in, and I suspect they're tying them in only so much as the fact that Spider-Man does appear in the MCU. All of them. Yeah. All three of the MCU Spider-Men appeared in this one. Right. I was going the other way than you were. I apologize. <laughs> well, you know, it's it wasn't necessary for them to do so. But I think that that was definitely uh, where they were going with this. Is yeah. that all of the Spider... I mean, all of the Spider-Men. Every single representation of Spider-Man in comics, movies, 
TV shows, uh, animations, you name it, every single Spider-Man that has ever existed since the inception of the character has yeah. some kind of cameo <laughs> in this movie. So, Yeah, they have multiple scenes where you can see over 100 Spider-People, Spider-Things yeah. on the screen at one time. Mm-hmm. Even down to the Spider-Man T-Rex, which is, or Spider-Rex or whatever they called him. Yeah, which I, believe I have is a, no idea what they call it. Uh, a new property that is starting up where it's like Spider-Man in the world where dinosaurs were not destroyed or something like that. So, Yeah, it's newer. I want to say it's like four years old by now. Yeah. I appreciated that they made the moral questions in this one a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And less black and white. So that helps sway my opinion of the movie up to the as good as. And if it's not as good as, I'd consider it pretty darn close. Yeah. And, and you know, like I said, I didn't hate the movie. It was just that yeah. I felt, I don't know, I think it was more like my expectations were maybe a little too high going into it. mm because it took me so long to see the original movie. I, you know, I really had my walls up to protect myself from the original movie. And when I, everybody kept telling me I'd love it. And I finally got around to watching it. And I really did fall in love with it. And because of that, I think, you know, I went into this movie expecting more original, I guess is what I'm thinking, is that yeah. They made such strides towards originality in the first movie. I guess I just expected them to keep making strides forward instead of getting stuck in place and just doing more of the same. I think that's why I was able to come at it. I hate to say it, but I think it helped that I came at it pessimistically, thinking <laughs> they are never going to top it. Right. Yeah. So they actually raised themselves to my lower bar. <laughs> And they didn't quite reach my higher bar, so it's a worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a fun story, and it was still had a lot of action, and it had a lot of good character development. And I really appreciated them telling the story from, really, from Gwen's point of view. I think this was, like mm -hmm. I said earlier, more of Gwen's story than it was Miles's. And because we get her perspective before where, you know, you kind of close that gap between the, the little teaser scene they put at the end of the first movie, and you kind of tie the gap between when Gwen leaves and when she, you know, comes back to Miles. Right. We kind of get that bridge there. And yeah, I think that overall, the movie, it did okay, I guess. <laughs> I just can't sing its praises <laughs> because it, it wasn't yeah. quite up to my bar. I but. Understand. Yeah, and and then of course the cliffhanger really did bother me, and I and not so much that it was a cliffhanger, but that it at least the first movie when it completed it had the promise of the second movie, but it wrapped mm -hmm. things up enough that you felt like, you know, that you saw a movie and it there was development and then there was an end, then then yeah. they promised you more, and this one there was no end. And so I don't really, you know, I, I prefer an ending with promise of more rather than yeah, no ending I think that's, at all. That's the difference between it. I don't, the more I think about it, the more I don't think we should call it a cliffhanger. Mm. Because I feel like a cliffhanger has to have a greater story and a lesser story. Mm -hmm. The lesser story has to be adequately resolved, but the greater story has to end on a point of tension, right? Mm hmm. 
I felt like Gwen's story was not resolved as well as I would like to have seen it be. Because she starts the movie out by talking about how she betrayed, essentially betrayed Miles. Mm -hmm. And we sort of see that, but we don't actually see the, the resolution of that. We see her gather a team of like-minded spider folk, but we never see Miles come to terms with the betrayal that he perceived as well. So I sort of feel like they dropped the ball a little bit on resolving the minor. So how are you saying this isn't a cliffhanger? Because it seems to me that this, this is a cliffhanger because nothing's resolved. Except I don't think it's a cliffhanger. I think it's part one of a two-part story. Not even that. I think it's a story that they cut in half. Yeah, which is in a way a cliffhanger. But <laughs> yeah, it's I'm I'm being really semantic here. Yeah. Uh, it's just that I feel like a cliffhanger should have a better. Oh, I agree with a you. Better formed minor story. I completely agree with you, which is why it irritates me. Yeah, I don't think that this movie should have been a cliffhanger. I think there should have been some resolution of something so that Mm -hmm. you can say, I saw a movie that had an ending, you know? Yeah. And I don't feel it had an ending. It did not. I I completely agree. It ended halfway through act two. (laughs) (laughs) It did not have an ending. It had no ending at all. It was the beginning of something. Yeah. And, and that was the sad thing about is we even dropped our villain. I mean, like spot was supposedly the villain of all of this and he really kind of vanishes halfway through the movie. And uh, yeah, I just feel like this, it was bad. He falls through a black hole. Yeah. It's like you have like two and a half hours of movie and no resolution of anything. And you just expect people to walk out happy after that. I think Spot will still end up being the villain, but he, I think he was just a plot device in the first one. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. And I actually like Spot because, you know, the first time that you encounter him, he's like weirdly polite. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm so sorry I have to steal from you, but I'm not really stealing from you. This is my you. first robbery. I'm yeah. <laughs> it's really Let's the not bank, make it's not awkward. yours. Yeah. <laughs> and the voice actor who did him as a longtime comic actor. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman. He really did a, a good job with it. it <laughs> all the voice acting I thought was really good. Oscar Isaac did a great job as Miguel and pretty much all of them, really. Yeah. The one part that I didn't like, and my distaste is not so much in the movie as much as it is with Marvel itself. You know, they've gone with the Spider-Verse theme like three different times now in the comic book series. I've gone back and looked at them. I don't read comics regularly anymore, but when we finished the first one, I went back and I reread the Spider-Verse comic series so I could get an idea of where they might be going with this. Didn't work, but that's beside the point. But I did encounter all of those spider variants, and I have a problem with Spider Cat and Spider Dino, and all those ones where what the core lesson of Spider Man is the canon lesson of Spider Man with great power comes great responsibility. There's no way a cat or a dinosaur could understand that. 
<laughs> Unless in their world, they are the intelligent beings in their universe. Yeah. I want to say the dinosaur one, which I did read. I never saw the cat one. And the dinosaur one was just like one third of, of a whole comic book. They all had thought bubbles, but I don't think they communicated. Anyway, I found it irritating to have silly variations. You know, I know that I'm probably in the minority there, but that was a little bit off-putting for me. <laughs> but like I said, I thought it was as good as the first one. I wasn't disappointed. Yeah. Except perhaps in the way they ended it. I'm glad that we're not going to have to wait 18 months for the next one in hoping that the writer's strike and the actor's strikes don't somehow still manage to put this one off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. It's entirely possible. Unless they are, like you said, in post-production, at which point they could be close to wrapping it up and it's just a matter of a short time before it's actually ready and they can start doing test audiences and that kind of stuff. Who knows where they are in it? I would assume because this is such a... Just like, oh, this is we we reached our two and a half hour mark. Let's stop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe they they just kept on making it, or like they went further and just tried to figure out a good place to stop for the first movie. I don't know. Maybe it was planned out the way the way they did it. Yeah, it was rather abrupt. Let's put it that way. Yeah, they probably had it all storyboarded out, and they're like, mm-hmm. "Well, crap, we didn't leave a place to cut the story. <laughs> uh, somebody throw a dart." yeah what will bring everybody back in a year yeah (laughs) well before we go into our theme discussion i do want to thank our current patrons isaiah santiano craig hardy stephen brown the second david lefton and peter chapman who give to us generously on a monthly basis to support this podcast you also can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching or are you just watching.com slash Patreon. We appreciate all those who support us. And we really would love not just monetary gifts, but interaction with you guys. So we appreciate all of our listeners and want to know what you think about what we're doing. So please make sure that you're communicating that with us. Thank you very much. Yeah. So we're going to start with probably, I think, the second biggest theme. Yeah, I I disagree with you there. Yeah, see, I I know this was a big deal in the movie. It was a big deal to one particular character where the other theme that I want to discuss was brought up in almost every scene. (laughs) So, Mm. I don't know. I I think this one may be I didn't notice what you considered to be the major theme. I just sort of wrote it off as, eh, that's normal. All right. Well, we'll deal with your theme first. (laughs) Okay. All right. So my theme was the idea of canon. And in Across the Spider-Verse, we find that one of the potential villains or potential (laughs) heroes, depending upon which side you're coming at it, (laughs) has devoted his life to preserving what the movie refers to as canon. And, you know, canon is a really big thing in fandom, in across every fandom. Mm-hmm. When Star Wars... Came out with more movies. Yeah, it's, you had the first three Star Wars movies from, you know, the 1970s through the end of the 80s. And they were huge hits. And then they came back to that same well. 
and said, uh, all right, we're going to make pre- the three prequels. We're going to make episodes one, two, and three. And people started going, oh, no, the canon is gone. Then, and then Disney bought them and it went, went crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, a decade or two later, uh, <laughs> Disney buys them and they say, okay, we're going to make episodes four, five, no, wait, seven, eight, and nine. Yeah. And, and then add a bunch of TV shows. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least Disney had the smarts to say, okay, this is what's canon and this is what's not canon. <laughs> and they went through because Star Wars had a whole bunch of really good books written by some incredible authors. Timothy Zahn is a great one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the Zahn books. And he wrote a great series in which Chewbacca died and Han and Leia get married and have several kids who all grow up to become world-changing Jedi, but also well-written. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's not canon anymore. Yeah. So, And George Lucas, I think, had actually come out and, and declared those Zon books to be the final completion of his story. So, yeah. uh, you know, to have Disney then take it and do something else. I mean, it's understandable, but we're not talking about Star Wars That's what happens here, when so you sell your property, right? Yeah. Well, we don't want to get off on a tangent. Star Trek did the right. same thing. Exactly. I know that when Star Trek, you know, rebooted with the new Star Trek movies, you know, they... Mm-hmm diverted from the original canon. And they sidestepped it by calling the Kelvin universe, I think. Yeah. (laughs) So at least they addressed it. So I'm interested in seeing how this set of movies is going to address that too. And And I really think they're laying the groundwork for inclusion into the fandom of the MCU as well. Yeah. Or at least connect to it in some way, shape, or form. Because I think... Sony yeah. has, I yeah. don't really feel like Sony feels any loyalty to the MCU. They're not part of the the whole Disney-held MCU properties. And mm-hmm. the MCU only uses Spider-Man with Sony's permission because they own that character. Right. But right. I feel like they were giving a nod to all versions of Spider-Man. And so that includes yeah. Yeah. the MCU. I feel like their their loyalty is limited to how loyal they think their fans are. Right. To yeah. the MCU canon. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of like a, a Disney-serving fan service. Well, you know, it, it allows, you know, the fact that the whole concept of the story allows for there to be multiple canons and them all be true exactly. at the same time, which is, yep. you know, the whole point of the Spider-Verse anyway. Yeah. So I was curious as to the origin of the word canon and was surprised to see the canon is actually from the Greek. Mm-hmm which was picked up in Latin and is retained in the English language today, all essentially spelled the same way. The Greek didn't have a a letter C, so they use K. But more importantly, when we as Christians think of canon, we think of the books of the Bible. Yes. When we talk about the Apocrypha, we're actually referring to canon, because a whole bunch of really smart people got together and decided what books go into the Bible. It's called the canon of the Bible. And the books that are disagreed upon are referred to as the Apocrypha. And the Catholic Church actually has something like six or eight books in their Bible that we Protestants don't have, I think. But the important part here is the word canon is tied inextricably to a zealous following and... That's what we see in Miguel in this movie. He's willing to do what appear to be evil acts 
and force other people to do so in order to support what he and his AI call canon. I think there was a line where Gwen actually got mad at him and says, we're supposed to be the good guys. And his response was, we are. Yeah. And that, That's you know, the way he that defines goes it. back to the old writer saying the villain is a hero of his own story. Mm-hmm. Except we get to the end of this movie and there really is a question of who the villain and who the hero is, who's right and who's wrong. Right. And we'll get back to that later. Yeah, exactly. So the interesting part for me is this ties into what the MCU has been doing as well. There was a Disney Plus series called Loki that centered on a break in the official timeline when in Avengers Endgame, they all went back and they got the Infinity Stones. Yeah. And in the scene where they recreated the the Battle of New York, Loki actually ended up with the Tesseract which he did not do in the original version. And that created what was what this series called a variant Loki. Mm-hmm. And in the series Loki, we learn that there is this extra-dimensional, extra-temporal agency called the Temporal Variance Authority. And what they do is they go around and they fix these variants. They capture the variant entity and then banish them. Remove them f- from their their location in the timeline or whatever. And Right. You learn throughout the series that they're actually sending them to a collapsing time space or something like that. And throughout the series, the first season of the series, you learn that there's actually a head of the Time Variance Authority who calls himself He Who Remains. And that was the first place that we were introduced to the character of Kang the Conqueror, who appears in Quantumania. So at the end of Loki, the Loki variant who was played by the woman who did an excellent job ended up killing He Who Remains. And the timeline, instead of being not straight, but one long curvy timeline with a few aborted branches off of it, suddenly splits all through the entire timeline and becomes this web, this literal web of variations, you know, and then you get into the multi-universe theory where every decision or every possibility creates two different universes. (laughs) There's a scene in Across the Spider-Verse where Miguel is explaining the whole canon thing. And he shows this this thing, and he's talking about if the cannon breaks, then you get all these branches. And the graphic they show mm-hmm. in there is the exact same graphic they used yeah. when the female Loki killed he who remains in the Loki series. So I'm thinking they, they confirmed it's it's related. I found a video from Emergency Awesome where he goes into like the full breakdown and cameos and all that kind of stuff. And he actually spends a bit of time talking about the correlation between the TVA and you know, the Spider Central or whatever it is. So yeah, he talks about that and how the it visually is the same and all of that. And so we'll not, definitely have to post a link to that video in the show notes because yeah. it's well Emergency worth Awesome watching. is great. I just hadn't gotten to that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's super good because he actually like freeze frames and like tries to identify all of the spider people in Spider Central or whatever they called it. 
what you're talking about like the canon and the way that Miguel talks about it is it isn't so much that it's a, a timeline that that's being preserved but that it's a series of events that are important to the creation of Spider-Man and the maintenance of his character in in the correct right process. yeah so it's it's not so much like of overall timeline that he's preserving it's more of you know like i think at one point the he identity says, of spider-man uncle ben is important because without uncle ben none of us are spider-man and yeah. so it's like what he's saying is is that these canonical events must take place in order for spider-man to be the hero that he is meant to be in every iteration throughout all of the different universes. So, well, that that's interesting to me. There are certain things that have to happen in order to make Spider-Man Spider-Man, and if you stop any one of those events from happening, then Spider-Man is not Spider-Man. And I think that's what he was saying. In his description, though, he explains that it will actually destroy that universe. universe. Yeah, if that canon event doesn't happen, so it's not the fact that. Billions of sentient people cease to exist that bugs Miguel, but that Spider-Man does not exist in that universe. In the proper way, yeah. Yeah. I find that a little more disturbing. Maybe Miguel is a villain. Yeah. Well, you know, they do show, and, you know, I'm kind of, and, and we'll get into this more a little later, is they do show, like, in the, the India version of New York that they are fighting... Yeah. They do show that there's this giant hole that opens up and starts to like suck everything in and they're they're right. trying to close it. And Miles thinks that the spot caused that hole. And Miguel's position is that hole was caused because he stopped the cannon event from happening in which the captain right. was killed. And you you sort of gotta trust Miguel on this because I mean they already had all the equipment to address it and everything, so right. they must right. have seen it before, right? Right. Yeah, so I mean, there seems to be some support of what Miguel is saying, because, you know, he assumed the identity of himself in another universe, and that universe ended up tearing itself apart because he prevented yeah his death in that universe or something like that. So from his experience, he's operating off of his past experience, that if you break the canon, the whole universe you know, disassembles itself. So if that is his experience and he has actual events to back that experience up, you know, to base that upon, then this isn't something that he just made up and that he's, you know, enforcing on everybody. He's actually trying to, in his own way, save entire universes. Uh I I wanted to bring that up because, you know, when we get off on the the TVA, you know, I I didn't watch all of Loki, but it did seem to be, to me, a different emphasis than what we're emphasizing with the canon in the Spider-Verse, because all of this seems to be central to Spider-Man himself. The whole reason why Miles Morales is, you know, the anomaly is because he was bitten by the spider that was intended to create the Spider-Man in World 42 or whatever they call it. Earth 42, Earth, yeah. Earth 42. And because he prevented that Spider-Man from happening, Earth 42 is awful because <laughs> it has no Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah, and it felt like he was considered the anomaly because his spider story is actually from two different variants. 
Earth-42 came into his. You know, this is one of the confusions in the movie that maybe will be, you know, drawn to a conclusion in in the last movie. But I do feel like what he was saying, and this was holding out, was that he was the anomaly because by the 42 spider being pulled into his world, yeah, he got bitten by that spider and his world already had a Spider-Man. And so now you had two Spider-Men, which caused the original Spider-Man to be killed. So he, he was blaming Miles for Peter Parker dying in his world because mm-hmm. there can't be two Spider-Men. At the same time, Earth-42 didn't get a Spider-Man because the spider wasn't there to bite right. Peter yeah, exactly. or Miles or whoever. So he was doubly the anomaly because he created the entire event that actually broke all of the universes, you know, because he, he tied two different worlds together and broke the canon in both of them. And then that created this catastrophe where all the Spider-Men got pulled out of their universes and into his universe and and it just broke it further. And so that was the impression that I got was that he stepped in, that this wasn't something he was always doing. He messed up his own time frame and realized that that was a mistake. And then when Miles became the anomaly and totally ripped the fabric of all of the Spider-Verse to shreds, that's when he stepped in and tried to start fixing it all. That was uh, the impression I got from Oh, him. you you felt like Miguel hadn't been doing it all along so much as No. Miles' existence. He actually said that in the movie that that was when he was explaining to Miles that it was Miles's fault that he had to step in when all of this started because Miles was the original anomaly. So, in order for Miles to be the original anomaly, then that he had to have been the one that started all of what Miguel is doing. And that was the impression that I got was that they were, he had started gathering all of this, you know, Spider-Man Central to try and heal all of the rips that were caused by the events that happened in the first movie. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to pay more attention to that part. (laughs) I felt like Miguel had been doing this all along because he already, at the end of the first Spider-Verse movie... Mm-hmm. You know, it had that post credit scene with Miguel and uh, and Lila in it. Well, but you, you were also given the impression that a year had gone by because we you found right. out at the beginning that there was a year between when everybody left Miles and when Gwen came back to him. So yeah. there was a year there. And I, I'm not saying that his devotion to the canon started then. I'm just saying that his attempt to heal the damage to the canon started then, because he had already experienced what harm is done by upsetting the canon in his own personal experience. And so, anyway, that was my impression, that that was like the the series of events, because it almost had to be that way for Miles to be the original anomaly, which is the point they keep making in the movie, was that he was the original anomaly. It only makes sense if they're going to make him the cause of all of this, that he also be, you know, okay. the, the central reason why the canon is broken, basically. That that makes more sense. Yeah, he, he goes through everything like a bull in the china shop, because it's like, he doesn't understand that there's a canon that every Spider-Man is supposed to follow. And so, 
you know, they invite him along to stop Spot. And all he's thinking about is I'm stopping the villain. And I'm saving everybody I possibly can not realizing that some people are meant, quote unquote, to die. Right. And so he gets he, like a bull in the china shop without realizing what he's doing. He breaks the cannon again yeah. and again and again. Before we jump into the question of whether or not some people are supposed to die. Right. The one thing about the canon, the canon discussion in this movie is it never makes it clear where Miguel is getting his canon from. Right. It's there's a you know there's that I think uh, he gets it from repetition. It's like because he has hundreds of Spider-Man lives to look at. I hope he not. just com- yeah <laughs> because that would be far more fallible than any of the other solutions would suggest. Well, I mean, like he shows that scene where you know Uncle Ben dies, and it's like being mirrored in all the different universes, like all yeah. of the Uncle Ben's dying. So he, it's like these these canon events are necessary and they happen in all of the... I mean, they even brought that up in the first movie. It's like everybody talking about, you know, their Uncle Ben. And for Gwen, it yeah. was Peter, the person who dies, who starts them in the correct direction. There's one parallel that I think we really need to mention in the canon discussion. And... That is the zealous nature of Miguel's support of canon and how that might compare to Christians who believe that Scripture is the inerrant Word of God. Oh, yes. So in the zealous support that Miguel has for canon, we see a sort of a parallel with the zealous nature of evangelical Bible-believing Christians in the Word of God for mankind. And, you know, we're into the second week of this annual atrocity, this annual abomination that's called Pride Month, which I'm still convinced is a sign of the apocalypse, pride being one of the seven deadly sins from Catholicism. And, and now we must celebrate it. <laughs> and now it's it's forced on us for an entire month. But you know, folks in the LGBTQTIA plus community, you know, they they always say, oh, you're homophobic or what have you. But it it's not true for most of us. It's not true. It's not homophobia to believe that the sexual deviancy of homosexuality is bad for humanity. Mm-hmm. It's not fear to say God calls it an abomination multiple times. So they look at us and they see the same kind of zealousness. They see the the kind of zealousness where we would allow men, women, and children to die by suicide or live miserable lives just because we believe in words written – 5,000 years ago by a Moses who probably didn't even exist or something like that. Yeah. But that's not the case. And we have to remember, it is the Holy Spirit within us, the Holy Spirit that inhabits us as part of our salvation. It's our counselor that allows us to see this truth, that allows us to understand and see it as the truth that it is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what's hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. 
really all our entire belief is based on this hope of Christ coming again and providing us with a world of perfection and a body of perfection and relationships of perfection. And, you know, we believe it. We have to. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, one of my favorite books of the Bible for obvious reasons, but one of my favorite verses <laughs> says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It doesn't say that every answer is found in the Bible. It's not. What it does say is everything we need to know in order to come to the appreciation of Christ's sacrifice for us is. And that's a zealousness that Christians have. And we don't see any support from Miguel. So, you know, I wish they had fleshed that out a little bit more. Yeah, I think for the purpose of the movie, I think it was established. What I'm intrigued to understand is whether or not it is true. So I think that is the question of the hour, basically, or the two and a half hours, and the sequel that's coming as to whether Miguel's position on the canon is actually true. And that was when I watched the Emergency Awesome video, that was the point that he kept making in his hour-long synopsis of the movie. <laughs> it was that he, he felt like it was being very well established that that he is wrong. And that was kind of the whole point was that they are establishing that yeah. he is indeed wrong. And so I agree with you that Christians have a definitely strong rock to stand on in believing yeah. that the canon of scripture is inerrant and God's word. Regarding anyone else's, you know, man-based fallacy and foundation on shifting sand, we already know what that is scripturally. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus taught about what it's like to build a house on, on sand and versus rock. And, and that is what all of man's philosophies are built on is sand. And so the foundation is weak and it will always fall apart. And so if we apply the same standard that we apply to, you know, our canon of scripture to any kind of fantastical canon, it, it will always be shown to be false. And, right, and I think that right. that is actually a topic that I want to deal with later, but Hey, before we do move on, I did want to uh, briefly talk about a fantasy series that I oh, started yeah. reading on the side. I, I don't know how many Christians are familiar with Mercedes Lackey. She is a fairly well-known fantasy writer, but she is also a very well-known liberal, and she does speak to that, you know, her liberal philosophies a lot in her book. So it's hard to stomach her if you're against, you know, even exposing yourself to those kind of Ideas. So I do not recommend her as an author. If you have not read her, I don't necessarily stand up and wave her flag. But I have read most of her books personally myself. And she has started a series called the, the 500 Kingdom series. And basically the question that she asked to start the series is, what if you lived in a world where every story is forced into the tradition of a fairy tale? So if you are a girl whose father dies and you're left to the care of your stepmother, 
the tradition forces your story into Cinderella. You become the mocked and mistreated, you know, stepdaughter who then must somehow win the favor of the prince of the kingdom. And the prince of the kingdom is stuck falling in love with you because that is the tradition that uh-huh. the prince must fall in love with Cinderella. And so in the 500 kingdoms, there is the are these fairy godmothers whose entire purpose is to go around and stop the tradition from turning the stories of average people into fairy tales. And so every book is a different story in this, you know, kingdom where fairy godmother has to step in and try to abort the tradition from forcing the story into, you know, the canon of the fairy tale. And when we were introduced to canon in this movie, I instantly thought of the tradition in the 500 Kingdom series, because that is exactly the way Miguel treats the canon, as he sees it, as this unopposable force that forces every Spider-Man to go through the same events in order to be Mm Spider-Man. And I think that that is a completely different way of viewing the time stream than, you know, it's like these things make the characters who they are. We are influenced by our environment and by the things that happen to us. They drive us in a particular direction and they they determine who we will be. And when Miles Morales is mistakenly bitten by the 42 spider who was not supposed to bite him. He was not supposed to be Spider-Man. He still goes through canonic events because he loses his uncle. And so everybody is identifying with him because he is going through the events that make Spider-Man. So is it Spider-Man, the events that make Spider-Man, Spider-Man, or is is Spider-Man not the events that make Spider-Man? He is more the power set and the yeah. The moral underpinnings that make him make choices that he would otherwise not make because he is made of the character of man. Because you could easily see how the same set of powers could turn somebody into a villain. It's so a, almost a nature versus nurture type of question. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I, I really felt like that was the way canon was being dealt with in this movie was more like this outside force that directs the, you know, the direction of every person into, you know, like, instead of being, you know, something within the person themselves, it's external to that person that kind of like forces them. It's like, oh, you're, well, you got bit by a spider. So therefore you must lose your uncle or your father or your girlfriend or whatever. You you have to lose somebody important to you. Yeah. This whole topic of the canon leads into one of the things that is, it's a moral quandary that is often raised in most of the hero stories, and it's particular in the Spider-Man stories, the Spider-Man canon. Hmm. (laughs) Whether you save the one person, if you must choose between the one person, saving the one person and saving the many. So this is, as we have discussed, I think I can try to remember now which review we talked about the trolley problem on. Oh, wow. It was within the last year. Yeah, there was another movie we talked about that had that problem. And it is Stowaway. Stowaway! Yes, that was it. The movie that is very forgettable. (laughs) (laughs) Which is weird, because you know it was a good movie. I don't know that it was really that good of a movie. It was a movie the entire plot was contrived in order to create a oh, problem. Oh, yeah, that's true. 
You just liked it because you were able to bring your friend in on the review. Yes, yes, I, I did like that because, you know, it, it did talk about – it tried to be, you know, semi-authentic. <laughs> All right. So dealing with the trolley problem, just a reminder that the trolley problem is do you choose – one person to die, or do, will you give yourself up, one or the other, in order to save three people or more people who are, you know, divert the trolley over, you know, yourself or or one person rather than sacrifice three or more people? So you, you have to to make the choice is to sacrifice one to save the rest. In the context of this movie. The one is the Uncle Ben character, the person who must die in order for Spider-Man to become, you know, the canon event. You can't save, you know, the the person who is supposed to die to keep Spider-Man on canon. Because if you divert Spider-Man off his canon, then his whole universe will die, which will be, you know, millions of people. Yeah, Miguel is one side of the trolley problem and... Miles is the other, and it really comes down to me as a a question of God's sovereignty. Do you do what is right Mm. right now, or do you do what you think will be right tomorrow? (laughs) And that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's clear as mud. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's it's actually made sort of clear in – Across the Spider-Verse. Because Miguel is forcing... He believes that certain people have to die in order for Spider-Man to exist. And if mm-hmm. Spider-Man exists, then he will say Spider-Man will save people. And he will make the world a better place. But that's not what we as Christians should be believing. My take is that we put tomorrow in God's hands. Matthew 6.34, Christ says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each Mm -hmm. day has enough trouble of its own. So I read that as God saying, hey, I got this. Cut it out. Yeah, nothing happens outside of my will, so quit stressing. Yeah. I mean, so many places, the Bible tells us that we should be trusting God. Psalm 62, 8 says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. That's not just trust God. That is give everything over, all your worries, all your concerns to God. If you worry that putting out the fire today might not let the forest grow tomorrow, trust that God has mankind in his best interest in regard to how the forest serves man, right? Yeah, and you know what? This has an interesting connotation to, you know, the way we view our world secularly. I mean, right. it's like right now, as as we are recording this, there is a plume of smoke oh. overtaking the northeast of our country. Tell me about because it. of a, a forest fire in Quebec, Canada, that is, I guess, out of control. I haven't actually, you know, looked up to see... Yeah, you know, it's not just Quebec, doing, it's Newfoundland, it. too. There, There's a couple of them. Yeah, so we've got these wildfires that are going on that are affecting a lot of places. And in most minds, wildfire is a natural occurrence. 
But there are some things that we do as man that make wildfires worse. And I think we've been experiencing this a lot on our own West Coast out in California. A lot yeah. of the things that they do in the regards to land management actually make wildfires worse. And it's a lack of foresight because they think they're solving problems and they're actually making them worse. And we ran into this as well during the Dust Bowl, you know, the land management issues that we had in the, the plains where we cut back all of the heavy plains grass and planted in crops that die out in the winter and come back in the summer. And we left all of this ground without the root structure to hold it in place exactly. so that when a drought happens, all of that topsoil gets picked up by the wind and, and blown around and we create the dust bowl. So all of these things that man tries to do to fix nature, to conform it to the way we want it to work, a lot of times that foresightedness is, well, not a lot of times, we simply can't see far enough into exactly. the future to do things that will ultimately be good for the environment. And I will tie that directly into, you know, this, this whole concept we have of climate change now, where we think that we're going to fix things. And so many times that we try to step in and fix things, we actually break them. Yeah. And I think we need to be very, 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 very careful how much we try to change what is happening. Yeah. Nature, and I, and by nature, I mean God, because nature is subject to God and God is yeah. ultimately Na sovereign to it. Nature is the set of rules that God... Has ordained right. creation yeah. run under. Right. I know that God has set up nature to run in a, in a certain way, and it is to some extent self-healing. He set it up to be able to adapt to the way man operates within that rule structure. And so I feel that we overstep ourselves many, many times yeah. when we try to replace God in how we interact with nature. That is, of course, a tangent that we probably – don't want to go too far down. But what you said about God being sovereign and doing just the thing that seems right at any one time, and not trying to fix those things that are outside of our control and trusting in God's sovereignty are a good reminder to us. When we look at scripture, both New Testament and old, we see that God's power upholds the universe, upholds everything that is actionable. He is the very magneticness of the atoms that holds the world together. He is the gravity that, that makes the planets move around the suns. He is the ordaining power, the sustaining power. And we can trust that he is in control, but we do have to make decisions sometimes that is the trolley problem, you know, and in all of that, we have to trust, as you have said, in, in God and know that he is in control. And that is, in a way, is very comforting because the rest of the world is so anxious. They spend so much time trying to avert one catastrophe to trying to avert another catastrophe. It's like the fear mongering that goes along with that is all a matter of control. Right. But right. it also is a matter of continuous and utter anxiety and fear. 
And to know as we do that God is in ultimately in control is it takes away all that fear. We no longer have to worry about who's making decisions and, you know, whether we're cutting down too many trees in the rainforest, which was the big catastrophe of my generation yeah. <laughs> when yep. I was in high school, to whether, you know, we have we don't have enough electric cars. You know? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it just it changes from decade to decade what thing we're supposed to be afraid of. But we don't have to fear because our God is in control. Yeah, it, I think it's the attention span of people. Um, yeah. <laughs> that changes it, not whether or not it's it's still a concern or not. But it comes down to we need to do what's right, not sacrifice what's right to what we think the greater good is. Because the greater good is not yeah. our responsibility. In this case, the trolley problem doesn't really apply because, you know, the the trolley problem in its original sense says you have one choice, you must make it on a split second, and either choice will result in the death of either somebody very close to you or a group of people you don't know. And, you know, interestingly enough, is in the case of the canon event that Miles prevents in the India, oh, the death it of actually Captain Singh. was... Yeah, it actually was a trolley problem for the Spider-Man of that universe, because he was trying to save the bus. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And he had to choose between the bus full of people and Captain Singh. So by having Miles there, willing to, like none of the rest of the Spider-People were, willing to actually step in and rescue these people who were, quote unquote, meant to die. Yeah, Gwen even tried to stop him. He actually helped the Spider-Man of that universe by preventing him from having to make the choice between the the people he was rescuing and Captain Singh. Yeah, I mean, the trolley problem is definitely there. Mm-hmm. It's just Miles stepped in and changed the way it worked. Yeah, there's a reason the trolley problem is, is hypothetical. It, it just such a clear-cut crisis choice doesn't really appear in our lives. It can, but I, I think that usually it, I think the solution is usually pretty obvious. Yeah. I don't think that it's, it's one of those things that you can sit down and philosophically deal with because I think in, in the moment, the answer is always pretty obvious. If God forbid I ever encounter a true trolley problem, I'm going to do what I think God would want me to do. Because the trolley problem requires that people are going to die either way, that's something that I will have to live with. But I'll live with it knowing Mm -hmm. that I did everything I could to please God. And that's where my hope is. Yeah. 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 And God is sovereign. That's our our hope and our faith. God is sovereign over it all. Well, before we continue, we do have a couple more things to discuss, and we'll have, may have to breeze through them fairly quickly just to keep things moving. But I do want to remind you that you can share your feedback on this episode and on our podcast in general. You can comment on the show notes by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash 141. You can call 513-818-2959 to leave a voicemail, or you can text that number as well. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. 
join our Facebook discussion group, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community, or our preference, you can join us on Discord, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. If you join us on Discord, you could actually be listening to us while we record, though I'm not entirely sure that's actually a benefit because (laughs) we tend to... It's not as streamlined as it comes out. Yeah, we do a lot of editing on our podcast. But you could be part of the discussion and and actually guide some of our discussion if you were listening to us as well. Really do appreciate our listeners. And it's it's helpful if you share our podcast wherever you are in your social media, in your family, in your work environment, wherever you get in a movie discussion, you might you know, pop out a reference to us, to your friends and family, and let them know that we exist and and spread our podcast to those who might enjoy it. We really would appreciate that. All right. So moving on, the theme that was beating me over the head with a bat when I watched this movie <laughs> was the whole parenting of teenagers thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I am not a parent that has stood out to me so much, but... <laughs> It was like you got it from Gwen at the beginning with her and her dad, and then you you got it with the first time you see Miles's parents as they're waiting on him to show up, you know, to talk about you know his future in college, and they're you know upset and worried that he doesn't show up on time. And then there's the whole party with his dad and being late with the cakes, and which some of that is part of the Spider-Man canon, yeah. That he's always late and undependable because he's busy fighting bad guys in between all the other responsibilities in his life. And when you're a 15 year old child who's still living under the the provisions of your yeah. parents or what under my roof, darn it. Yeah, under the authority of your parents, then you know that throws a bunch of wrenches in the whole you know fighting bad guys thing. And I think that that is one of the things that really comes out for both Gwen and Miles's stories is that they're both lying to their parents. And obviously, if you're Spider-Man, and you have parents living, which the original Peter Parker story is, you know, he's an orphan living with his aunt and uncle. And he lies to his aunt and uncle as well. So it's like, how can you be a good, righteous person when you are lying to the people who matter most to you? I personally think that if I got bitten by a radioactive spider and suddenly found out I had powers, the first thing I'd do is call my mom and go, guess what happened to me? But that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> I was never the rebellious teenager. Can I get some so. guidance here? I tell my mom everything, so I, I don't think I would keep that a secret from her. I, maybe it's part of the Spider-Man canon that they must lie to their authority figures in their lives. But I think that, you know, that comes back to, you know, what we know from Scripture in Exodus twenty twelve: honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We should have respect for our parents. And that's actually one of the things where Miles is talking about his friends and his parents make the comment that they don't appreciate being called by their first names. Yeah by Miles's friends. Mm-hmm. And then Gwen comes into the picture and the first thing she does is address them by their first names. And it is a matter of honor that when you talk to people who are older than you, you show them respect. I was raised in the South where, you know, the the ma'am and the sir 
anybody that was older than you and sometimes even people younger than you that are in authority over you, you treat them with that kind of respect. And our culture is kind of leaning towards now, you know, with the feminist thing, as you call a woman a ma'am, she gets mad at you and hits you over the head, you know, but. Uh, hopefully, figuratively, not literally. Yeah, well, some of them actually might actually hit you, but I don't know. <laughs> some of these feminists, I don't know. <laughs> There's definitely a very strong theme throughout Miles' story, especially with his parents' own discipline and respect of parents and how it looks to be parenting a teenager who's, you know, getting ready to fly the nest and become his own person. And, it you know, there's the, the section where they're talking about college and he mm. wants to go to Princeton and his mom says, oh, no, that's too far away. Yeah. You know, that's, you, well, you could pick a college here in Brooklyn. <laughs> she doesn't want to see her little man, you know, her little boy grow into a man and, and leave home. And, and, you know, his father's dealing with that, too, and actually has a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with Spider-Man about it, which is kind of funny, since Spider-Man is his son. Let me interject real quick. At the end of the first movie, did you get the impression that Miles's dad figured out Spider-Man was Miles? No. I had gotten that. I'm <laughs> going to have to go back and check that last scene again. No. Okay. No. He managed to pull the rule over his dad's eyes. Yeah. But yeah. And, and then there's the scene, well, the series of scenes having to do with Miles being grounded because he hmm. kind of talked back to his parents at the party, you know, that Very whatever. Very much so. He had zero respect for his parents at that party, which is, he deserved everything he got. Oh, yeah. He was a little jerk is what he was, but he got grounded. And then his mom decides to come up and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with him and ungrounds him. And I got to think, is like, that's that inconsistency and in discipline that sometimes causes children to be confused. Like, when the, the mom and the dad are not on the same oh, wavelength yeah. when it comes to disciplining. That happens in real life all the time. And and I, I think that really doesn't help children much either, because no, then doesn't. they don't, they know that... You know, it's like, well, dad told me I can't do this, so I'm going to go ask mom. <laughs> mom will let me do this. There's a ton of verses in the Bible that have to do with discipline, and most of them are in Proverbs, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. And I just picked out a few, Proverbs 13, 24, the one who will not use the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 29, 15 says, a rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a youth left to himself is a disgrace to his mother. I thought this was interesting. Hebrews 12, 7 through 8, this is in the context of God disciplining us. And I, th I think it's a, a really cool context because we all have to endure discipline in life. It's not just kids. Yeah. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Basically saying, if you don't have discipline then you're basically like a child lost on the street that nobody cares about. Yeah. And we should respect our parents and our God and those in authority over us because that discipline is character building. And this is, I think, the, the part of this movie that really shows that Miles really is a loose cannon because there is no authority over him that he accepts. He doesn't accept the discipline of his parents. He shrugs it off. And... Any other authority figure who attempts to discipline him or show him a correct path, he says, well, I'm going to do it my way. Mm -hmm. 
I can do both. That's like his constant response to everything is that I can fix this. I can do this. I can do it my own way. It's almost like, you know, man's response to God. You know, I'm going to do this my own way. In fact, when I was watching, you know, this video that, that, you know, get kind of gives the synopsis and the prediction of where the third movie is, is going to go. He predicts that Miles's way is going to be the correct way, that Miles is going to win out in the end. And that actually disappoints me because he is this obnoxious jerk of a 15-year-old who doesn't seem to accept discipline or the authority of anyone in his life, over his life. It's, it's like every time somebody tries to impose any kind of restraints or constraints on his behavior, he shrugs it off. And the fact that he's going to win in the end with that kind of attitude is yeah. <laughs> a little disappointing. I, I think his behavior is very typical of that age, though, and it, it's part of yeah. uh, part of growing up, you know, wanting to take control. And frankly... A big part of that, and maybe, and maybe they'll cover this in the next movie. A mm-hmm. big part of this is realizing that you don't actually know everything. And yeah, well, I hope so. I hope he learns something. From having this. to fall back on the experience of your seniors. Yeah, I would hope so. I, I mean, I, I don't foresee that happening just because of you know the way things are going, but maybe because they have emphasized. Yeah parenting so much, maybe they are going to have some kind of an authority figure who actually does step in and give Miles useful guidance that helps him in the end. I don't know. I I would hope so. Because we see, you know, Gwen dealing with her father as well. And when she is forced to reveal herself to her dad, it does change their relationship. But I think in the end, she's still looking to her father for some direction and some understanding yeah. of what's the right way. You know, and I don't think Miles has that relationship with his parents. Gwen's dad sort of reminded me of Chris Pine's character in the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Mm. He seemed so focused on not the death of his wife, but the fact that he did not have a marital partner to uh, or a, a parental partner to balance the responsibilities with that he was sort of just throwing up his hands and and saying well this is too hard for me so I'll just coast as much as I can yeah and the fact that he put so much emphasis on who killed peter trying to avenge peter i guess he kind of felt like it was a son of in some ways yeah you know, to the point where he doesn't even hear Gwen saying, you know, it was an accident. It happened the way it needed. She obviously mourned Peter, but mm-hmm. she understood, you know, that what happened to him was the results of his own actions. Yeah. You know, he, he basically brought his death upon himself. So, and that I think kind of wraps this into who is the villain because mm-hmm. that is a question that I, I walked out of this. In fact, I was talking to a coworker about that today. It's like, who is the actual villain in this movie? And technically, if you're to believe Miguel anyway, yeah. technically, Miles is the villain in this movie. Not the spot, not Miguel, not anybody else. He is the original anomaly. Everything's going wrong because of him. And that ties into what his mother told him because she was like, don't let anybody tell you that you don't belong. Mm that this is who you are supposed to be, you're supposed to fit in, 
you're you're not supposed to let anybody shove you out of the way or tell you you don't belong and that you're unloved because you have parents who love you and the big bad world just doesn't know who we're sending out there kind of thing. And, you know, I got to thinking about that from the standpoint of this movie where the villain is not clear, that the whole world, because of the way they deal with truth these days, the whole world is in shades of gray. It's like you don't really know truth anymore because it's all that's your truth you know that's always the answer is that's your truth that's that's not my truth yeah when you go back to your your comments earlier post truth society yeah the lgbt and you know i don't know how many of our listeners have watched the what is a woman documentary that was done by the daily wire that's one of the things that that they put in there a lot you know is is the whole the comeback that, you know, well, what is a woman? Well, that's your truth. My truth is this. And so we're dealing in a in a culture where everybody defines truth for themselves and there is no actual truth and everything is relative. And that's why you can't point to who the villain is in, in this movie because it's all dependent on your perspective, what your truth mm-hmm. is. Miguel's truth is that Miles is the villain. And Miles's truth, I think, towards the end is that Miguel's the villain, not Spot, because he's the one he's have to he has to fight to get home and save his dad. So the one who's trying to prevent him from saving his father is Miguel. So that yeah. makes Miguel the villain. I sort of expected more of a attitude from Miles that Miguel was misguided and he had to prove to him that Spot was the villain, but that really wasn't there. I really did yeah. feel like. Miles had lost focus on Spot and had started focusing on Miguel wants to kill me. <laughs> yeah, well, he had to because Miguel was trying to prevent him from going home to to save his dad yeah. because Spot was going to kill his dad. So I think that overall, I mean, everybody is to some extent a villain and everybody's some to some extent a hero. And that makes it the, more of a commentary on our culture because our culture really does live in these these shades of gray where there really isn't any truth in in any particular perspective is right it's just your truth versus my truth and sadly i don't see that improving in the third movie <laughs> <laughs> but i did want to wrap this up because of this comment of you know the relativeness of truth and and who the actual villain yeah, is yeah by talking about what the biblical perspective is on this, because all in all, as Christians, we do have a definite truth because mm-hmm. Jesus declared himself in John fourteen six, he is the truth. He is the way he is the life. There is one truth and all of our worldview, our perspective, everything that we believe as Christians centers around that truth. Can I throw up a softball for you here? Sure. We humans, because of our fallen nature, can never truly know the truth just on our own because Mm -hmm. there's something in us that prevents us from doing it. It's sin. Yeah. The heart is deceitful. Yeah, we keep going back to that verse, don't we? I think we write (laughs) about every other... Yeah, yeah. The heart is deceitful and wicked and, and all of those things that 
well, the world relies on their heart to tell them, you know, which way to go in every circumstance. And our heart will always lead us astray because, as it says in Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. So we live in a sin-cursed world. And on top of that, we are all sinners. So we're always going to make the wrong choices if it's up to us. And the second truth that ties on to that is in Romans 5.8, it says that Christ died for us even when we were sinners. So that is, you know, that there wasn't anything we could do to fix it. God had to reach into that sinful mud at morass and pull us out of yeah. it. The third truth is that there is no discrimination among believers. That's Galatians 3.28, a verse that we used a lot. And, in and this a couple podcast. other places too, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we are all equal in the eyes of God as believers because we are all washed in the blood of Christ. Our sin is forgiven and justified through the blood of Christ. And when God looks at us, he only sees Christ. He doesn't see us. He sees Christ in us. And that is equalizing because there is no greater equity that you can gain in the culture and in the world and anywhere else. Because you're always going to be looking at the differences of other people and comparing yourself to other people. God is the one who looks at us and sees us as all the same. And that is not only the ultimate equity, but it's also the ultimate justice because he is ultimately just and he punishes sin and our sin is justified through Christ. It isn't anything that we do that gains us that. And then the last thing is that man's way is never the right way. And you see that in Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25, which are Amazingly enough, the exact same verse. (laughs) (laughs) Two places in Proverbs where it says that man's way is not the right way. And that leads us back into my, my little circular here that Jesus is the only way. He started out being the only truth because there isn't our truth and your truth and my truth, there is only the truth, which is Jesus, but he is also the way because our way will never send us in the correct direction. So who is the villain? Well, I would say we are. Yeah. (laughs) We're all the villain because we're all sinners and Christ is the hero. Yeah. We Christians have an established villain, but that villain is already beaten. He just doesn't know it. He's the prince of this land. Yeah, yeah. So I think that we probably could have pulled more out of this movie, oh, yeah. but it was a dizzying movie as it was. And I think we've probably beaten most of these horses to death. Yeah. And um, not the masked one that's in the movie. They're still but- winning. <laughs> but we'd love to know what you thought of the movie. So do join us in Discord to chat about it and make sure that you share this podcast and tune in for whatever we do in July. I don't think we've picked anything out yet, but we'll figure something out for July. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.